John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast for November 1915. This podcast looks at life in World War I through the letters of John Adams, who was 23 when he joined up in September 1914. He served with the 9th Service Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers and was involved in many significant events on the Western Front, particularly Passchendaele. These are his words, read by his grandchildren, and narrated by his great-grandchildren. This month will include one of the most striking letters so far. In the middle of the letter, John Adams tells his mother basically that he knows that he may die. For a man who is in his early 20s, this is a stark revelation, probably informed by what he's already seen with his few short weeks at the Western Front. But he goes on to talk about it being a sacrifice. During November, it's important to remember these men who were willing to put themselves on that line so that we could be safe. Those men who sacrificed their future, and the men and the women who still do at the moment. We also have correspondence from Thomas Davidson, who was Mary Adams' nephew, John Adams' cousin, and we'll hear a wee bit of background about them. Instead of a history section, over the next few months we'll be having a discussion between myself and my two brothers, John and Roger, about a trip we made last year in 2014 to the Western Front, where we followed the letters and other evidence to walk in the fields that my grandfather walked. This month we start by giving a background to both the website and the transcribing process of those letters that we have. And to begin with, I asked John about why he started the webpage. I think for, for, for me, it was a way of getting the letters that we had in storage that uh, dad had curated and stored the letters from Granda. It was a way of sharing those wider and telling a story. I think it's a fantastic story to tell, therefore sticking them on a website, putting them on something which is akin to modern day blogging and actually running it like a blogging platform. It seemed to be a good way to get the story out and actually tell something to a modern audience. And Roger, you take the letters that were stored away and you transcribe them. Honestly, I think that's quite difficult looking at some of the letters, some of the handwriting. So what are your main difficulties in doing that? Hi, Mark. I think some of the difficulties, uh, they weren't that difficult. Uh, and I enjoyed the whole process of transcribing all these letters. The handwriting is pretty good because obviously all these children of the day learn the pretty standard hand. So once you get your eye in, it's not too bad. I think the biggest difficulty was that some of the letters were photocopies because many of them are stored. Dad donated them to the Public Records Office and the Royal Irish Fusiliers Museum in Armagh. I received copies of the letters rather than the originals. And so the quality of some of the photocopies wasn't very good. And that made them quite difficult to read. But on the whole, the handwriting is not really a problem. It's missing things like dates and postmarks and so on. Right. Sometimes they're quite tricky to tease out. And just for our listeners, where we're looking at the letters in order, you tend, Roger, to transcribe them out of order, just whatever comes to the top of the pile. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. It is, it is a pile, and there, there are actually still quite a lot of particularly postcards to, to find and go through. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I've got all the letters either. This is like funny. So, and for any listeners, if you want to keep on checking on the website for letters, there are new ones that go up every now and again whenever Roger yeah. has time, because it is quite time-consuming. It is. It takes quite a little while to to read through the letter, make sure I've got it right. And I do make corrections on it. It's not transcribed verbatim. Uh, I do make sort of grammatical corrections or just clarity, really. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to keep a sense of the, the language they're using. As some, the person who actually reads the John Adams letter, sometimes it's quite difficult reading the Ulster Brogue into a letter. <laughs> so, so on to the trip. Whose idea was it to go on this trip? Because it wasn't mine. I'm not sure. I think it's something I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, I know it was something Dad always wanted to do, and I think he always regretted not having the the time and the space and um, you know the liberty to actually go and wander around the Western Front. Mm-hmm. I think it's something he always really, really wanted to do. I also thought, you know, coming up to the centenary, it would be a good thing to try and get it in before the centenary happened, because the Western Front's going to be mobbed, particularly in nineteen in twenty sixteen. Uh, the Western Front's going to be absolutely mobbed. It's going to be full of people. I'm not sure who came up with the idea, but we, we all thought it was a good idea. It was. Uh, I mean, I have to say that I felt like a bit of a passenger at times, but it's something that has informed my research into John Adams. Uh, I am quite grateful for the research the two of you put into this and put into this the journey that we made. We probably ought to give a shout-out at this point to Blacker's Boys, because actually yeah. without... Without the research that Nick Metcalf did and then published as the Blackers Boys books, we just wouldn't have, uh, you know, we'd probably be losing a lot of the contextual information, which actually told us where the regiment was, what they were doing at the time, and particularly things like Shoddy Farm, which, yeah. you know, there was absolutely no way that was anything more than the name before Blackers Boys came out. I think, I think funny enough, I found that before Blackers Boys came out, I, I somehow managed to find where it was. It's still called Shoddy Farm, I think. Is it? Uh, yeah. yeah, or something like that. Um, and I found it on a website somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, ages ago. Um, yeah. yeah. I, so love the I knew where that was. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. The mines in the Battle of Mezzanines comprise a series of mines dug by tunneling companies of the Royal Engineers under the German Fourth Army. The mines were detonated at the start of the Battle of Mezzanines, 7th to 14th June 1917, creating 19 large craters. The joint explosion of the mine ranks among the largest non-nuclear explosions of all time. The 9th Royal Irish Fusiliers were in reserve when the huge mines exploded at the start of the Battle of Mezzanines and followed up in support of this successful attack. While we were driving, there were all these beautiful ponds here, there and everywhere. These beautiful, very circular duck ponds. And it took me a wee bit of time to realise those were the, where the shells hit. And we end up yeah. at uh, Mezzanine and the Pool of Grace. The, the Pool of Grace, that's the one where the bomb was so loud it was heard in London. Would that be right? There were several of them, yeah. These were mines which were fairly deep underground. I think there were either, it was either 16 or 18 of them were blown up. I think it was the 6th or 7th of June 1917, all within 15 minutes of each other and completely obliterated the German trenches above them. It, 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 was, the, it was the weapon of mass destruction of his day in, in some respects. Yeah. Uh, gas notwithstanding. Uh, there were extraordinary quantities of uh, explosives and left these huge, as we saw, craters in the mm. ground. Now ponds, one of them is called the Peace Pond, near the sea, and Granddad was there. And, although I don't think he, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he walked up the ridge in the immediate aftermath of the mines, but came up in the sort of second or third wave, is that correct? Yeah, he, he was in the reserve battalions that day, so the I think it was the Royal Irish Rifles who who were actually in the attack. Uh, but the attack made some incredible gains of like seven kilometres. Yeah. So Grando would have been following up in the reserve lines either later on that day or the next day. 
And that was one of the, that was one of the battles where the 36th Ulster Division and the 16th Irish Division fought side by side. Yes, that was right. Just trying to remember what we, what else we saw there. Uh, I think we went to visit, was it Plug Street? Uh, where we saw, Street, uh, the memorial that contains the name of one of our relatives. Um, is that the right place? It was close to there, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was Plug, Plug Street Memorial and it was William, William McKnight who was right. Granda's cousin. So far, he's the only relative of ours that we've identified as having died during the First World War. Uh, that yeah. was fairly early on, wasn't it? That was in 1914, yeah. yeah. The Battle of Langmark from the 16th to the 18th of August 1917 was the second Allied general attack of the Third Battle of Ypres during the First World War. The battle took place near Ypres in Belgian Flanders on the western front and the main British gain of ground occurred near Langmark. Both sides were hampered by rain which had a great effect on the British who occupied lower lying areas and advanced underground which had been frequently and severely bombarded. It was here that John Adams won his first military medal on 16th August 1917. The attack was repelled by heavy machine gun fire and thick wire. Battle of Langermark. That was just one of the minor battles in uh, in the, the Ypres offensives and you know, Passchendaele campaign, if any of these battles ever are minor. Although it was pretty major for the 9th Royal Irish Fusiliers because they almost had, I think, the same scale and order of magnitude of casualties as they had on the first day of the Somme. Uh, that was, I can't remember if that was the campaign where we, we, we actually were able to walk the battlefield again. Uh-huh. Yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, near, near Dutchy Farm, that, taking that ridge just, just north of Zonnebeck. Yeah. Um, looking at the map while we speak. Um, just north of Zonnebeck, there's a, there's a ridge. <laughs> I mean, it's a ridge, and yeah, well, it's a gentle slope. You know, it's hard to think of somewhere familiar to everyone, but think of a gentle slope near home, and, uh, and that's what it is. It isn't a, it isn't a, a high hill, merely a gentle slope. You could cycle up without changing time too many years, but men have to walk up this in the face of stiff opposition. And that was interesting to see the land, the wire of the land there. Yeah. I think, again, the, the, it's really hard. If you look at the photographs of that time, the land around there was a, effectively a muddy bog pocked with shell holes and so on there weren't even trenches to speak of today it's just green pastures you know cattle grazing on it and gentle slopes and so on i can't imagine that gentle slope being just a a mud bath november 1915 from personal notes date isn't specific it's simply marked as november in trenches, Hibbertern sector, attached to Gloucester Regiment for instructions. 7388 Lance Corporal T.H. Davidson was discharged from the 2nd Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers on termination of his engagement on 6th of November 1915, at the age of 32. Thomas H. Davidson was Mary Adams' nephew, who grew up in Tullylish near Guildford, County Down. He enlisted in the 2nd Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers in 1902, serving in South Africa, 1903, Egypt from 1903 to 05, Crete, 1907-1908, and Malta, 1908-1909. He returned back to the UK in 1909 and was transferred to the Army Reserve. On outbreak of war, he was mobilised at Oma, the Inniskillings Depot, on 6th of August 1914, 
and sent to camp at Loch Swilly, where he was posted to the 3rd Battalion on the 19th of August. He disembarked in France with the 2nd Battalion as part of the British Expeditionary Force on 27th of August 1914, when he was appointed as Lance Corporal. He was wounded in France on the 7th of November 1914. He remained in France until 31st of October 1915. Thomas Davidson joined the 2nd Skins the day after the Battle of Le Cateau, when the battalion were fast retreating from the advancing Germans. The battalion were then involved in the Battles of the Marne, the Aisne and Messines 1914. In 1915 they were actively involved in the Battle of Festubert in May and the Battle of Luce in September. Davidson was likely to have been involved in most of these engagements. He was posted back to the depot on 1st November 1915, before being discharged on termination of his first period of engagement on 6th November 1915. He had served for 13 years. Up until the introduction of conscription by the passing of the Military Service Act in 1916, a man who had served under a regular or territorial engagement and who had reached the normal expiry of that engagement could and would be discharged from the army. This even applied to experienced men who were serving in the trenches at the time. The man was known as Time Expired. Postmark, Oma, 5th November 1915. Postcard shows 2nd Presbyterian Church, Oma, a view of the stone church with pinnacles and an open belfry. The bell is missing. Dear Aunt, Just a line to say I've arrived here and in good health. We'll write later. Hoping all is in good health. From your ever-loving nephew, THD. Undated, unaddressed postcard, possibly included with a letter. Postcard shows a soldier, unnamed, possibly Davidson himself, standing face-on to the camera, Baldrick-like. This is a boy I'm bringing home for Annie, hoping she'll like him. From THD. Ha ha. 19th November 1915. Dear Mother, I have a few minutes to myself, so I thought I would spend them in writing home. Sometimes I have not time to write a letter, but send a card every week. I got your parcel all right. Many thanks for what you sent me, but as I said in my card, you need not send anything out here in the line of clothes, because we have plenty of things out here in the line of shirts or underwear. I hope you got it all right by this time. I think you're fretting too much, and it won't do you any good, for I'm all right out here, and if anything happens to me, you will have the satisfaction of knowing that I have done whatever I could to keep the Germans back, and I think for each man that falls out here, there should be two sent out. Nothing but the overwhelming force of men will bring this war to a close, and I wonder that anyone can sit at home that can come out here and see this war going on and does not help to bring it to a finish. I suppose Jimmy is busy every day. Is all the potatoes out by this time? The weather has got very wet out here. Was Tommy up yet, or is he at home? I suppose he will hardly stop on. He has done his share. When everybody has done as much, the war is over. Jack is in good health. Him and I are still together. I think this is all I have time for, hoping it will find you all at home in good health, as it leaves me in the same here present. I remain your loving son, John Adams. Field Postcard, 
Monday 29th November 1915 I am quite well. I received your letter dated 26th of November 1915. Letter follows at first opportunity. Thank you for listening to John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast. To find out more about John Adams and his family, visit www.johnadams.org.uk forward slash letters. The history of the 9th Service Battalion, Royal Irish Fusiliers, during World War I is taken from Blacker's Boys. Visit them at www.9thirishfusiliers.co.uk with the number 9. Podcasts will be published 100 years after the letters are written, so will be published nearly every month. If you would like to contact us with comments or reactions, the email address is letters at johnadams.org.uk. This has been a Mark Mess production. <laughs>